Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme this afternoon by Simon Barr. Simon is a co-founder of Tweed Media, a specialist PR and marketing consultancy with a specific focus on field sports, including game shooting and deer stalking. It is headquartered in Coldstream in the Scottish Board. Simon, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure for us to have you on with us, Simon. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to first and foremost establish your take on leadership. So just looking at that word leader aside for a moment to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What ought a leader be in your eyes? That's interesting because uh, the business that, uh, that I run uh, initially, my wife and I started the business, so we were our own leaders. It was a partnership initially, but as we grew, um, of course, uh, the business grew to a point that my wife and I were not able to um, resource it effectively, so we had to bring other people in. So we kind of learnt leadership on the job, so to speak. Um, I've worked for other people in my uh, career, and you sort of take the best bits from everybody that you've had an experience working for, and the worst bits, how not to lead. And I would say probably um, my top four leadership points, communication, I think, is is absolutely critical. Um, delegation is something coming from a, if you like, a kitchen table business as we started, being able to delegate tasks to people and not wanting to do everything yourself is, is hard. As a leader, I find that sometimes difficult because I want to do everything in the business, but I haven't got the time to do that. So learning how to delegate and being a good delegator is very important. I think empathy with uh, uh, people that uh, are working for you is critical. So when you give them, if you delegate a task to them, you understand the task you're asking of them. And probably in our instance, we will have done everything ourselves at some point in our business's history. So we can understand the challenges that there'll be. And I think that helps with the, the delegation process as a leader. And I think um, finally, really gratitude. If someone does a good job, I think it's really important to praise them. And I think that's very motivating. So I guess that's that's what leadership is for us in our business. Mm. And you say, of course, you sort of take elements of leadership from sort of negative experience as well as positive ones as well and use that to sort of shape your own leadership style um if we sort of take that idea away from maybe people for a second and think more in terms of experiences i think it's fair to say that we're going through one of the greatest learning curves that business has had to adapt to in our time and that is of course the covid19 pandemic it's been a very challenging time for business of course a very sensitive time for many as well given the nature of what's been going on but would you say there is actually anything as a business leader that you have learned from this experience of managing a crisis and adapting to a new reality? Well, it's, it's interesting. We work in PR and communications. So I've, um, you know, I've been on the receiving end of communications and we've had to communicate on behalf of some of our clients, um, obviously in, in consultation with them through this process, watching how the government has communicated with us as, as citizens of the UK has been very interesting. The daily briefings, you know, the, the, the sort of popularity, the things that went well to begin with. And then there was a sort of week where things started to go south. And, you know, I think it's been hard for the government to claw that back. Um, very difficult task for any government to demonstrate leadership through. I think Boris um, uh, becoming ill through the process and having a baby, he had lots of challenges. I, I looked at it and felt that 
there was a lack of leadership for a period of time. And I still don't think as a, as a country we've been shown that level of leadership. I think Boris in the last couple of weeks has started to demonstrate good leadership again. But, you know, he's got some ground to make up. I think there was a, a, a hiatus where things didn't go so well. Um, the Dominic Cummings incident, there's a number of things where the country lost leadership. And me as a as a, as a business owner um, and uh, working with clients, getting them to lead communication is absolutely key. Good, clear communication is very key. So it's, it's I don't think I've, I've had a eureka moment. I think it's more just confirmed things that we already felt as a business and, and I feel as an individual. And I think when it comes to scrutiny of the government's leadership throughout this crisis, one of the big debate points has been the clarity of certain guidelines. And that's especially relevant as we start to see more and more businesses begin to open up over the uh, the next few weeks. Of course, with yourselves being based in Scotland, there is the issue of divergence between Westminster and Holyrood. But do you think that guidance that has been filtering through to yourselves from both Westminster and Holyrood has been clear enough thus far? Um, it's interesting. As I sit now looking out of my office window, I can see more of England than I can of Scotland. Just I can see the Cheviot Hills, uh, and that's a larger expanse. And we're based in Scotland, our postcode Scotland. We are over the Scottish border. But it's interesting. We are literally on the border between England and Scotland. Um, I think there has been a lack of clarity. But I have to say I've got an extreme amount of sympathy for the government. It's unprecedented, extremely hard, and they've been reacting to um, uh, you know, a very, very dynamic, difficult situation. So I don't think anybody would have got communicating absolutely right or leading absolutely right. Um, I think there have been, uh, I don't like the fact that there's an ambiguity between Holyrood and Westminster. I feel that some of it's just point scoring rather than actually of any genuine benefit. And I think that that's, that's you know, as a, as a business owner based in Scotland, we've been restricted more by what's come out of Holyrood than has come out of Westminster, even though, as I say, I can see more of England from my office window than I can of Scotland. Mm. So it's been it's been an unusual situation. But again, I, I have a huge amount of sympathy because it's extremely difficult and unprecedented for anybody to, um, uh, you know, I, there are things I think the government has done a good job on and have helped us as a, as a, as a small business. I think Rishi Sunak's um, uh, fiscal policies through this have been um, very positive, and you know that has definitely helped us keep our head above water. Furloughing, there were some grant schemes, um, the government-backed bounce-back loans, all those things have definitely helped us. Um, and so, you know, very difficult for any government to find um, the right way through a situation like this. I think when there's been, you know, double standards and and those sorts of things, it's sort of a bit tabloidy to sort of follow Dominic Cummings around all those sorts of things um, uh, I, I'm hoping that that sort of water is under the bridge now and we're getting to a moment of things opening back up there's more news to talk about now rather than nitpicking through things that are just making headline stories and I, I feel that things are you know I hope we don't get a second spike that's my biggest concern mm. um, it looks like that's happening in other countries um, so you know we're still at the we're in that first two week period. We don't know yet whether that's going to happen to us. I just cross my fingers it isn't going to. And quite often as well, uh, being in a leadership position, whether that's within business or within the government, it can be quite a lonely place, can't it? Because people naturally, especially in a business environment, look up to managers, directors, executives for that little bit of reassurance that they need. And that can be difficult to provide when there is so much uncertainty, of course, and there might be a lack of information. But when you're the one at the top of the tree and there isn't anybody to kind of look up above you, 
four answers it can feel a little bit of a lonely place can't it so where is it that you look to for that little bit of reassurance and inspiration that you sort of are on the right track so i mean i've got a very good network of um, business leaders uh, who are very generous mentors uh, very generous with their time um uh, private enterprise um you know ceos of, of private companies who i'm friends with and are able to offer me advice um i'm very lucky that i've had some great mentors um through my career and you know there have been a number of people that have been very supportive and helpful to me um through this process none of them are in an official capacity they've all been if you like friends who are experienced and um, have been willing to offer advice i'm very lucky i have a, a long-suffering and um um, uh, a very intelligent wife who's able to offer me great counsel on on how to um, get through things. Uh, I, I, you know, as a reference as well, I've, I've actually found podcasts very helpful um, through uh, listening to other business owners how they're coping with things. Um, I think I found that to be particularly useful, um, and um, and that's been, you know, th- those are the areas. Um, uh, I don't feel like I've been sort of on a life raft without any support. I've, I've actually felt that there has been. Because everybody's in it together. It's not like just our sector has been hit. Everybody's been hit at the same time. So you can talk to anybody from any sector and they'll have different challenges because of the sector that they're in. But there are some commonalities and and advice. And I've been giving advice to others, actually, on things that I've experienced. So there's been a good sort of private network for me of of people that I can turn to for, for support and advice, which has been great. That's really positive. And I think it really sort of hits home the idea that some of the most influential and important leaders out there can be those everyday people who are closest to us, be they sort of friends, family, colleagues, um, especially within sort of a business capacity and in a mental capacity um, as well. Um, during this time, of course, um, you've talked about, of course, the furlough scheme being a real benefit for you as a small business. Um, I believe, of course, um, at the time of writing your article for the Parliamentary Review and Indispensable Guide to Best Practice, of course, there were roughly 10 employees at uh, the business, I'm right in saying, I think. Um, how have yeah. they found it adapting to this experience from that sort of mental health and well-being perspective? Because that's something that's really come to the fore again during this time, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, actually, um, we were um, just in the process of we, we uh, were moving from the borders in Coldstream to central Edinburgh, where we've acquired an office mm. um, at where we'll be relocating to. Um, we managed to complete the property deal during lockdown, um, and we, uh, which is, it was a surprise and more complicated than, than it would have been had we not been in the middle of lockdown. But we'd actually downsize a little bit in order to move up to Edinburgh and restaff there. So it was a, you know, a, a fortunate bit of timing that we'd been uh, deliberately kind of moving ourselves as a business to, to get ready to relocate. Um, so we've had a number of staff furloughed, but not as many as we would have had when we wrote the original piece in the parliamentary review. So the staff that had been furloughed, sorry, long-winded answer to your question. Um, the long-winded uh, or the short, the short answer is that I think from a, uh, mental health well-being point of view, everybody's been extremely unsettled because if you're furloughed, why are you the one that's been furloughed and mm. not the one that's still working? Does that mean that um, when furlough finishes, your job's still going to be there and going to be relevant? And I think, you know, I've had various conversations, sort of check-in calls with members of staff. And, you know, I think they've, they've all been, obviously they're not going to tell me their emotional ins and outs because I'm the boss and ultimately the one that will make a decision on whether there's a role for them or not. But I sense that there's a, you know, um, you know, they all want the business to 
survive and thrive because, of course, that means that they'll be in a job. So I think it's been unsettling for everybody. Um, but, you know, there's a, I guess, conversely, as I said, we're relocating and that will give us an opportunity to, um, there might be some people out of work in Edinburgh, very good high quality candidates, and we're going to have some vacancies. So we will be starting up as soon as we're able to uh, move up to Edinburgh. We will be um, uh, building the team back up. You know, we've got the, uh, because of furloughing, because of grants and so on, our business, as if things don't go into second spike and lockdown again for three months, you know, we, sh- we should be, and we did everything we could to lower overheads. Um, uh, we'll be in a position to grow again quite quickly. And I think that's important. We will be staffing up and we will be, um, uh, our big expansion has been in the United States. Um, and that is where we will continue to grow um, and we'll need more staff for that. So, um, uh, you know, that's something that we're, you know, I mean, I'm not excited about what's happened, but I'm excited about our move to Edinburgh, notwithstanding mm. um, the situation that we've been in. Our business, you know, we won't have a record year, but I think we'll make it through this um, and um, and we'll grow. As soon as we get back to normal trading, we'll grow. And of course, thinking about that sort of change in premises um, during this lockdown period, we've seen a lot of debates about our working practices and there's been a large amount of discussion as to whether, of course, there is a future for that office space or whether more and more people will be working from home on a personal basis. I imagine in your case, you air more toward the idea that there is a place for the office environment in the future of work and business within the UK because... I think we've taken that human interaction side of things a little bit for granted prior to this pandemic, haven't we? Well, it's interesting. I've, I've probably had more face-to-face meetings, albeit via Zoom, than I would do under normal circumstances. So, you know, I don't call people on the phone anymore. I generally Zoom people. So I've, I felt like I've been in touch with people on a, on quite a different level of connection than I had um, prior to, to the lockdown, we work in an environment with um, often we, it involves firearms because we're working in the, the field sports sector. So there is always going to be a requirement for us to have a brick and mortar premises because we need to be able to securely house a lot of the business that we do. So that's something that we'll always need. Um, I, I'm also a big fan of, of face-to-face interaction and it has felt a little bit um, disjointed. But that said, we've had um, uh, people working for us, full-time members of staff working for us remotely um, since we took on our first member of staff 10 years ago. So it's not something we're not used to. Um, and I think it's important for us to to have a, a headquarters. But I also think yeah, the way we work will change a little bit. But I almost think we were slightly ahead of that change with how we worked anyway. So um, you know, I don't think what's happened will massively change, you know, the, the day-to-day running of our business in terms of a, an office. It's still important for us to have an office, that's for sure. And thinking about what the next 12 to 18 months might bring as we adjust to the new normal that everybody's talking about, what do you think is next for yourself and for Tweed Media, Simon? And what do you really hope to achieve over the course of the next year as we embrace those challenges? Um, you know, I think... I think some of the biggest opportunities for a generation will come up. Of course, that's going to be at the expense of some businesses are going to be going into administration. But for someone perhaps in my position, we're going to be, we'll have an opportunity to acquire distressed assets, acquire distressed businesses. You know, I'm hungry to grow. I'm hungry to staff up. I'm hungry to look for opportunities off the back end of this. Um, Our expansion will definitely come through moving more uh, into the United States. That's 60% of our business now comes from the U.S., 
Um, and, uh, you know, there'll be some opportunities in the UK, no doubt. In fact, we've already um, been involved in one that could end up being pretty transformational for Tweed Media, which, you know, find a business is struggling and um, it could mean that we get involved with it and then end up with a, you know, a, another new, a, a complete, complete division to what we're doing, which would be very exciting. Um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. Um, it's a nuisance. This has been a, a troubling, difficult time for everybody. But I think we made, um, you know, we're a relatively small, low overhead, nimble business. We can react to sort of the changes in the marketplace. We don't have any leased plant. We don't have any big premises. We didn't have thousands of people that we needed to furlough. So we, we've had a few, but we, you know, we've been able to kind of roll with the punches, lose our overhead, and and get ready to expand again as soon as things start to to pick up. Last year, I think I spent six months of the year abroad. This year, you know, I've spent four months in the UK. It's the longest since I'm 41 now. I was 18 the last time I spent four months in the UK in one hit. Uh, so it's it's a remarkable time. As soon as we can start flying again, I think, you know, I, I'm excited. You know, I, I want to go trading. I want to grow my business. Um, I want to recruit people. I want to turn over you know, more and more money every year. So I, I'm optimistic about the future. I'm, no doubt we've got some troubling times ahead, but, you know, I have to have faith in myself, my company and, and the UK economy to pick up and, and, and you know, make the best of it. Certainly seems amid the uncertainty that there's a lot of exciting times on the horizon for Tweed Media, Simon, for sure. And, you know, given how exciting some of these plans are, I actually think it would be fantastic to catch up in the future and have you back on the programme with us at some point in the next year, just to see how some of those hopes are being borne out. I'd be delighted to. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's been wonderful having you today, Simon. It's been a thoroughly insightful experience for myself and also from a listener's perspective as well, having you on to discuss some of these issues. And until we speak again um, in future, do most importantly take care and stay safe with all still going on because we have discussed that uh, variable of there being a possible second spike. We don't know whether or not that's going to come. So let's just hope and keep our fingers crossed that it's not going to and we'll all be staying well and safe and it'll be an upward trajectory from here. Thanks very much. That was Simon Barr speaking, co-founder of Tweed Media. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after a treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium at 54 four long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff himself and all of that is coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. 
So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to 
be involved in my career in those early days were two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially in South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage of, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that 
someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show he, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that's—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, uh, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, 
when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we... That you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, um, you were a young man when this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps... Uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely—you've mm. got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, in a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, 
and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they uh, Ron Greenwood. Yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. Showed. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, 
you may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.